Welcome back to Adventures in Theater History. Today, we present the second of a three-part series that we began in our last episode as we commence our Season 2, Drama is Conflict. So here it is, The Quaker City, The Forbidden Play of 1844, Part 2. The beginning of George Lepard's novel, The Quaker City or the Monks of Monk Hall. A group of four men are depicted tottering down Chestnut Street on a winter's evening, already three sheets to the wind, as it were, but still ready for more fun. One of the group, a young swell named Burnwood Arlington, sits for a moment on a curbside municipal fire plug. He gazes up at the moon, shining over the city of Philadelphia, his bleary eyes seeing double. He calls out to his companions, Miller, the prophet's right, right, I say. The world, damnation, the plug, how it shakes. The world is coming to an end, for certain. For, do you see, boys? There's two moons shining up yonder this blessed night, sure as fate. Across the sidewalk from Burnwood, as Lippard paints the scene, is the leader of this little group, the tall, dark, and handsome Augustus Lorimer, leaning on the steps of a Chestnut Street house, his hat rakishly to one side and his black moustache gleaming in the moonlight. Augustus looks at Burnwood Arlington, sitting on the rickety fireplug, and at the other two members of the party, named Colonel Mutchins and Sylvester J. Petrican. "'Come on, boys,' commands Lorimer. "'Let's go into Smoky Chifflin's oyster cellar and have a cosy supper.' So the four tipsy men noisily clatter down the street and into the basement establishment proposed, where they order woodcock, venison, and stewed oysters, and four bottles of champagne. The evening's repast laid before them. Three of them call out to their leader, Gus Lorimer, demanding that he finish a story he started earlier in the evening, the one about his latest romantic conquest, huh? "'I see, boys, that you expect something nice,' replies Lorimer. "'Well, here goes. "'About two weeks ago I was strolling along Chestnut Street towards evening "'with Boney, that's my big wolf dog, you know, at my heels. "'I was just wondering where I should spend the evening, "'whether I should go see Forrest at the Walnut or take a turn around the town, "'when who should I see walking ahead of me? but one of the prettiest figures in the world in a black silk mantilla with one of those saucy kiss-me-if-you-dare bonnets on her head. And Lorimer then reveals that he spoke to this immediately charmed young lady whom he reckoned was a virginal maid of a good family. He boasts to his companions that in three hours' time 
He has an assignation with this lady and has already planned a mock wedding ceremony with her at the infamous Monk Hall, after which he will, of course, have his way with her. His companions are all suitably impressed by his rakish devilry, but Burnwood, for one, is skeptical about the young lady's supposed high-born virtue. There's so many whores in Philadelphia, after all, he says. He bets Lorimer one hundred dollars that this girl is not who she says she is, and that once Lorimer has had his fun, her real identity will come out. Lorimer, for his part, is confident that his prey is no mere prostitute, so he accepts the wager. Soon after, Burnwood and Lorimer leave the other two men behind and exit the oyster bar arm in arm. On a lark, they decide to visit the shop of an astrologer to have their mutual fortunes told. But the two young swells are startled when the astrologer gives them his prediction. On Christmas Eve, at the hour of sunset, one of you will die by the other one's hand. Cue ominous music and heavy foreshadowing, please. As the first installments of the novel Quaker City began to be released in serial form in the fall of 1844, it caused quite a sensation in Philadelphia. Its author, George Lepard, was only 22 years old, but he had already made a name for himself. Everyone was talking about this new book and thought they recognized the true identity of almost every character in it. In fact, because it was based on a true story, they knew exactly how this story was going to end. Eventually, Burnwood Arlington would realize that he had set Augustus Lorimer loose on his own sister, and in his horror, anger, and remorse, he would kill Lorimer on the ferry to Camden. But of course, that was exactly why everyone needed to read it. In fact, this book was making a lot of people both very excited and very nervous. George Lepard had been born in 1822 on a small farm out in Chester County, Pennsylvania, but when his father suffered a serious injury two years later, his parents brought him and his siblings back to Germantown, where the old Lepard family homestead had been for generations. His grandfather, in fact, still spoke Pennsylvania Dutch, and as his mother was not too well either, his two maiden aunts mostly looked after little Georgie. But then his mother died in 1831, and his father soon remarried. Now, I won't get into all the details of Lepard's early life, but suffice it to say that to read about the Lepard family is to see a constant litany of illness, economic decline, misfortune and death. Nobody that George ever loved lived for very long, and perhaps naturally he turned into a very morose and moody child. He was also intensely religious, very bookish, and very sensitive to slights and to social insults. He thought about becoming a Methodist minister at one point, 
and even went to school in Rhinebeck, New York, to study for it. But then he gave it up when the headmaster of that school seemed unable to show any Christian charity, even, on one occasion, to share a bag of fresh peaches with him. Coming back to Philadelphia, Lepard arrived home only in time to watch his father die, and then afterwards he learned that he had mostly been disinherited in his will. George studied law for a while, but he didn't become much enamored of what he saw of the legal profession either. For a while, frankly, he was homeless, squatting in abandoned Philadelphia houses or wandering the countryside outside the city, mostly around the Wissahickon Creek northwest of town. He was a bit of a hipster bohemian, really, and he grew his hair long and swept back in the style of the Pennsylvania Dutch of the 18th century. He was still quite intellectually curious, and he read every novel and history book and newspaper he could get his hands on, and he went to the theater when he could afford it. It helped a little when, in 1842, now 20 years old, he began working for John S. Dussault, editor of the penny newspaper Spirit of the Times. Here it was that Lepard began to write the torrent of material that he was to turn out over the next dozen years. It was like a tap had been turned on. As a new employee, he first just rewrote pieces clipped from other papers, but soon he was contributing three original columns under different pen names, as well as doing local reporting and supplying short fiction as well. Lepard was especially attracted to stories that revealed the secrets of supposedly respectable folk, preachers, theater managers, lawyers, politicians, and bankers. Of the last category, he especially detested Nicholas Biddle, who had been given control over the estate of the late millionaire Stephen Gerard, but had yet to act on the stipulation of Gerard's will that the fortune be used to build a home for orphans. And this, Lepard regarded as an outrage. Lepard also reported on the visit of the author Charles Dickens to Philadelphia, and correctly predicted that the Englishman secretly despised America and Americans. Lepard put all this and more in his columns, and he began to attract a loyal readership. His most popular pieces in the spirit of the times, and also then in his next job at another newspaper called The Citizen Soldier, caricatured members of Philadelphia's elite classes, employing easily decipherable joke names. For example, George Graham, publisher of the Saturday Evening Post, was called by Lepard the Gray Ham, and his co-publisher, Samuel Patterson, became Spermacetti Sam. The writer and preacher Rufus Wilmot Griswold was rechristened the Reverend Rumpus Grizzle, and so on. Lepard was also increasingly finding an audience for his fiction, too. Some of it was set during the American Revolution, and some of it was placed in medieval Europe. Copies of his first Gothic novel, The Lady Annabelle, that's lady spelled L-A-D-Y-E, were being eagerly snapped up as they came out in regular installments. By now, by the way, he had befriended another struggling Philadelphia writer and sometime journalist, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, in fact, wrote a public letter to Lepard praising Lady Annabelle and bestowing upon the younger man the title of genius, which 
helped to drive sales and also encouraged Lepard to supply the market with further torrents of his rather fulsome writing. But Lepard's works of fiction during this period, even if they were set in a distant historical past, were full of commentary on current events and ideas. Abolition, women's rights, Millerism, spiritualism, socialism. Lepard wanted to start his own monthly magazine to contain all the things he wanted to say, in fact. But when that didn't work out in the early fall of 1844, he began another project. The facts of the Heberton Mercer murder case, as Lepard had just detailed it for his readers in the pages of The Citizen Soldier, gave him an idea for a much larger work. He envisioned it on the model of the works of Eugene Sue, such as The Mysteries of Paris, which we noted before had been frequently produced in Philadelphia theaters. Lepard ironically picked up the longtime virtuous nickname of his hometown, The Quaker City, and put it right in his title, but to give it an ominous spin. So, he thought, the Quaker City, or the Monks of Monk Hall, semicolon, a romance of Philadelphia life, comma, mystery, comma, and crime. The events that drove young Singleton Mercer to murder formed the bones of this book's plot, and Lepard mixed those bones in a steaming cauldron of subplots and picaresque nightlife, all of which tended to reveal social and moral corruption. The action of the book centered in a mysterious mansion called Monk Hall in South Philadelphia that was home to a cabal of upper-class gentlemen who seduced and murdered unsuspecting victims and plotted financial crimes and held secret rituals there. All of this nefarious wickedness was conducted under the watchful eye of a ghoulish club doorman, a mulatto hunchback, who was called the Devil Bug. So, quite an undertaking, but importantly, the timing of this book was significant. The first two paper-covered installments of this provocative work appeared in October of 1844, as the quadrennial election season reached a fever pitch in Philadelphia. But, you know, this book was not calculated to calm things down. It was meant to keep things riled up. Quote, the tremendous excitement of the election should not deter anyone from procuring a copy of The Quaker City, shouted an ad for the book printed in the public ledger. Eugene Sue eclipsed, said another. Thrills, novel of real life, published this morning and for sale at 3 Ledger Building, 3rd Street, near Chestnut. The Quaker City, or the Monks of Monk Hall, founded on fact, gleaned from the manuscript of an aged member of the bar, to be published in four numbers at twelve and a half cents each. Not a bad price for all that. As we said, pretty soon almost everybody in Philadelphia was reading about Augustus Lorimer and Burnwood Arlington, obvious stand-ins for Mullen Heberton and Singleton Mercer, as well as other such nefarious and shady characters, as, for example, an editor of the newspaper called 
the Philadelphia Daily Blackmail, who, in the book, boasts to his fellow monks how he has seduced actresses in Philadelphia's theaters. Quote, Oh, I make advances. She foolishly repels me. Very likely, she calls me a puppy. Next day, an on-dit appears in blackmail, headed licentiousness of the stage, and embracing some compassionate allusions to the lady aforesaid. Huh? You understand? I damage her reputation by a paragraphical slur. And she capitulates? Sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. If her reputation is ruined, it isn't my fault, I'm sure. Close quotes. It's likely that Lepard loosely based this particular character on Rufus Griswold, who was a critic at the Philadelphia Daily Standard and known for his vindictive nature. Other characters in the book included great ladies and prostitutes and innocent young girls and corrupt lawyers and crooked doctors and a gang of black criminals. It was a real potboiler. Nobody came off well in it, really. Even the supposedly sympathetic character of Burnwood Arlington was revealed to have once seduced and abandoned a servant girl in the past. From the very first, copies of the book flew off the shelves, as everyone in the city, knowing Lepar's reputation, wanted to at least take a look. Had he written about them? They nervously inquired. But, you know, one person didn't care if he was in the book. In fact, he rather hoped he was, because he immediately sensed an opportunity for free publicity. Our old friend, Francis Weems, actor and theatrical manager extraordinaire. Francis Weems was now in a bit of a financial bind. In fact, he had only recently emerged from bankruptcy, and he had lost a lot of money when, as the manager of the National Theater on uh, Chestnut Street, he had been forced to shut down for two weeks during the anti-Catholic riots early in the year. He looked elsewhere for opportunities, but the New York theater world was at a low ebb, too, just then. Uh, lesser markets like uh, Baltimore and Pittsburgh also looked bad. The only performing artist that was making real money, he figured, was the touring Norwegian violinist Ole Bull. But Francis Weems also noticed how the growing theatrical rivalry between the actors Edwin Forrest and William Charles McCready drove ticket sales for those dueling tragedians. Their respective partisans filled the houses, whether to applaud or to boo them. Either way, the theater manager got the audience's money, Weems figured. Controversy is always good for box office, he concluded. So, in that fall of 1844, Weems decided to take over the lease of the Chestnut Street Theater, down the road from the National, to look for controversy. Of all Philadelphia's current theaters, as we've mentioned, the Chestnut was the favorite theater of the city's cultured elite. So, its regulars were very nervous about what Francis Weems, the well-known stager of disaster melodramas in all his previous theaters, was going to do with their beloved old Drury this time around. At first, admittedly, Weems tried to cater to the good old crowd, assembling once again the theater's regular stock company, and attempted to present what the regulars might have expected. 
A visiting star, for example, named Miss Nelson, opened the season with the respectable drama La Sylphide, but that had proved to be box office poison. Desperate, Weems had next booked the Jim Crow burlesque version of Othello. This had led to the uproar we've already described, which was all to the horror of the polite society who usually filled the theater seats. But Weems was very happy with the amount of money it had brought in. Let's keep doing that sort of thing, he thought. It worked. had another brainstorm. What if he put on his stage a version of the novel Quaker City? It would be a local sensation, like the Mysteries of Paris, but better. So Weems called on Mr. Lepard. Now, we don't have Lepard's version of this conversation, but here is Weems' account. Quote, Mr. Lepard was publishing a book in which he exposed right and left the profligacy of both the rich and the powerful, and the poor and the worthless of the city of Philadelphia. By the advice of my worthy friend, Mr. Ashbell Green, at that time one of the deputy attorney generals, I procured an interview, and he drew up a contract for which, under certain considerations, Mr. Lepard agreed to dramatize his own work and to furnish me with a copy of the play in fourteen days from the date of our agreement. The scenery was painted, the properties arranged, and the piece announced for representation. Now, I do have one admission to make. For the life of me, I can't see how the timeline works out here. Despite what we find written in that last passage, Lepard and Weems must have had this worked out somewhat earlier. I can't think that there's a way Lepard, who had never written a play before, could come up with a script in just 14 days, and then for Weems to have all the actors ready and the sets prepared in just one short week. They must have been working on this project even earlier than the accounts we have. Said that they did. But, you know... Who knows? 19th century theater was a very different animal than the one we know today. Maybe everyone, Lepard, Weems, the actors, and Durang, who for his part was in charge of running rehearsals with the company, were just used to working on an extremely tight deadline. Still, to me, on, on a basic level, this just makes no sense. It takes me all day sometimes to come up with a single paragraph, a four-act play in two weeks, According to Weems' account, that's what Lepard did. Okay, maybe this guy was a writing machine. But what about the actors who needed to memorize huge amounts of dialogue in a brand new play they'd never seen? And I can attest from experience that memorizing a role can take up to a month at the very least. And, and guess what? Weems had cast himself in the principal villain's role of Gus Lorimer, and he was busy running the theater company as well. Surely he would have needed more time than just a week. Frankly, I don't buy it, but okay, that's what the record says. Just mark me down as a skeptic or as being in awe. Not to mention that in the same period, Charles Durang also had to quickly put the scene painters and carpenters of the Chestnut Street Theater to work, making the sets for Quaker City. According to Durang's first-hand account, 
This scenery was intended to startle Philadelphia theatergoers with the accuracy of familiar local places, but transformed and cast over with a gothic and sinister gloom, of course. Again, how they did all this so quickly, I don't know. Maybe they used the printed early versions of the novel as their guide, together with Lepard's descriptions of what locations the book's final scene would require, and pasted that over stuff that they took out of the stock collection at the back of the house. But this is what Durang recalled many years later. Quote, there were many local views painted of buildings, churches, courtrooms, etc. Parker's restaurant was accurately sketched, with even Sully's great portrait of G.F. Cook, the eminent tragedian, and young Thomas Sully's inimitable conception of William Shakespeare. Close quote. And Two, evidently the Chestnut's actors and scene painters and prop men must have talked to their friends in the city about what they were up to because, said Durang, the word had gotten out and, quote, the scenes, the persons, and the incident of the play became the universal topic of conversation. And, of course, we can imagine the implications of these conversations. Remember, all of this potential dramatic exposure of the wealthy and the powerful was happening in the midst of a heated political season. In those days, an all-male, all-white electorate, a much smaller proportion of the populace than today, for them, reputation might mean everything for one's political career and for one's social capital. And, as you will recall, one of Philadelphia's most prominent citizens, George M. Dallas, was on the National Democratic Party's ticket for vice president. Election day was Tuesday, November 5th. The play was scheduled to premiere on Monday, November 11th. So, Let's leave the theater world behind and return to the political narrative that we discussed in part one, because I've never seen any other examination of the events surrounding this controversial play that takes that into account. By Friday, November the 8th, 1844, the late results coming in from distant states had made it clear James K. Polk had been elected the next president of the United States. George Dallas would be joining him in Washington as the vice president. A popular print shows the returns being announced in Philadelphia as a dead raccoon representing the losing candidate, Henry Clay, is buried at the former Second Bank of the United States. The ghost of Andrew Jackson is depicted, exulting up in heaven, and because this was Philadelphia, the artist of this particular drawing knew to show a great hubbub in all the streets. As a reporter for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle described this scene in front of the Democratic headquarters in Philadelphia, which was then at 8th and Chestnut, wrote, quote, the streets were thronged by a dense mass of human beings who made the welkin ring with their shouts, cheers, songs, and crowing. Lanterns were lit, bearing various inscriptions and mottos, and the crowd formed into procession and marched to the residence of Honorable George M. Dallas. Here they halted, and Mr. Dallas answered their loud calls by coming to the doorway and delivering them a speech which was received with most enthusiastic cheers. Mr. Dallas dwelt upon the subject of the late victory and the men in each section of the Union who had labored in their work 
close quotes, etc., etc. You know, the usual election ritual. Dallas, mindful of how badly things had recently been going in Philadelphia, and knowing that there were many disappointed supporters of the defeated Whig candidate, Henry Clay, still in town, made one other special plea that night as he stood on his doorstep in Philadelphia. According to the reporter, quote, he insisted strongly upon the necessity of treating their adversaries with the utmost kindness and of making no harsh or uncourteous manifestations. It was the cause, he said, and not the men who had triumphed. These remarks made a decided impression upon his hearers, and after he had concluded, he was saluted with tremendous cheering, and the crowd filed off in procession. Up to a late hour, the city was alive with excitement, and the street resounded with shouts, songs, and all the various demonstrations of triumph and rejoicing, said the reporter. Still, Dallas's calming words seemed to have done their work, and on the whole, there were no angry disturbances anywhere in Philadelphia that evening. But, you know, the spark for violence can come from many different sources, and there was still a lot of dry tinder lying around, as it were. The very next evening, less than two blocks away from Democratic Party headquarters, a young Philadelphian, accompanied by a group of his friends, strode up to the front of the Chestnut Street Theater. An acquaintance of his had told him to take a gander at the big new playbills then being placed in front of the big front doors of the Chestnut that advertised the coming of the next week's play. Pushing aside the person plastering the bills on the large sloping boards leaning against the walls of the theater, the young man read the words printed in bold capital letters at the top of the playbill. The Quaker City, or the Monks of Monk Hall, a romance of life, mystery, and crime. Quickly, frantically, the young man's eyes flew down the text of the rest of the poster. It was all there, each scene described, promising to theatergoers exactly what they could expect from the drama opening in this building in just two nights' time, staged in four acts. Act one, scene first, an oyster cellar. Scene fourth, an astrologer's house. On Christmas Eve, at the hour of sunset, one of you will die by the other's hand. Act two, the deluder and the deluded, a day of reckoning. Spare my sister. And the man grabbed the poster and ripped it off the board. Running over to the sheet on the other side of the theater's front doors, over the protest of the bill sticker, he tore it to shreds too, while his companions cheered him on. Singleton Mercer, for it was he, saw no necessity of treating his adversaries with utmost kindness, as Mr. Dallas had pleaded. After all, he'd killed a man over this very matter, and he didn't find further public exposure of his own sister's experience very amusing. Oh, the recently acquitted murderer was very, very angry indeed, and he had one idea burning in his head. He marched to the Chestnut Street Theater's box office and demanded of the treasurer that he be allowed to buy 200 tickets for all of his friends. Because, as he said ominously, he was going to stop this play 
even if he had to start a riot to do it. Okay, well, once again, we will leave you there in suspense about what happens next. Be sure to tune in to our next episode when we bring you the thrilling conclusion of this whole narrative, part three of The Quaker City, The Forbidden Play of 1844, here on Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. (laughs) 